0: Next, this month's special series, Focus on Heart Health. Throughout the month of February, ReachMD talks with experts about new medications, technologies, and treatment
1: guidelines in cardiac care.
0: Can three-dimensional MRI help us measure potential risks for stroke associated with an intraplaque hemorrhage? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. We're learning more about the significance of intraplaque hemorrhage and its role in cardiac and cerebrovascular disease. A better look at potential trouble spots could allow for earlier detection of an impending event. Can 3D MRI lead us in this direction? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. My guest today, Dr. Alan Moody, professor in the Department of Medical Imaging at the University of Toronto Faculty of Medicine and Radiologist-in-Chief at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center in Toronto. Dr. Moody, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you very much, and thank you for inviting me.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about your recent study uh, using 3D MRI of the carotids?
1: Certainly. Our interest is in imaging the vessel wall, which is becoming apparent that the vessel wall itself is where a lot of the trouble with vascular disease lies. In the past, we've very much concentrated on the lumen of the vessel where the blood is flowing and worrying about whether that is becoming narrowed and stenotic, But as our knowledge about the vascular biology of vascular disease is increasing, we realize that actually where we should be looking is the vessel wall itself.
0: I'd like to just jump in quickly with a metaphor for our listeners. If you were a donut specialist and you made donuts for a living, would you be more concerned with the hole in the middle or the actual donut itself?
1: The donut is what we're looking at for sure. Please go on. And so really what we're looking at then, modern imaging techniques that instead of concentrating on that flowing part, the blood within the vessel itself, can we now look at the vessel itself? The challenges being that these are quite small, even the carotid vessel in the neck supplying the brain, they're about a centimeter across, and the actual vessel wall itself is only in the region of millimeters. So this is quite challenging. Having said that, the technology that's at our disposal now, especially non-invasive techniques like ultrasound and MRI scanning, are getting to a level whereby the resolution is such that we can now start looking in quite detail analysis at the vessel wall itself.
0: And are you able to make a a correlation between actual histology versus what you see on the MRI?
1: Well, people have been striving to get what they call a a virtual histology using imaging and obviously there will be differences, but the studies that we've been performing to try and standardize the technique and prove the worth of the technique is really in its early stages whereby we take histology from the vessel wall itself, take actual specimens as the patients have had an operation on the vessel in their neck and compare that directly to the imaging that we have done.
0: And what are you seeing between those two?
1: Well certainly very good correlation. Our major interest at the moment was a slight surprise finding in a sense although known histology is the fact that although we're used to thinking of blood flowing within the vessel itself as part of the disease process you can actually get bleeding and hemorrhage into the vessel wall which in itself is part of the disease process. And as we've investigated that further and looked into that, it seems that not only is this a symptom of the, the vessel wall disease, but it's actually a, a driver of the disease itself. So this appeared to be a, a target that we could look at, and that's certainly what our research has been involved in recently of trying to find techniques using predominantly MRI scanning to look specifically for these areas of bleeding within the vessel wall. And the work we've done recently is to develop a a high-resolution MRI technique, and then we've compared that directly with histology that's been uh, acquired at surgery when patients have had their diseased arteries operated upon. And we've shown that there's a very close correlation between the imaging and the histology itself.
0: Are you talking about the vasovasorum that surrounds the arteries?
1: Very much so, and again, one of our other, not surprisingly, interests is is the vasovasorum, and really, we've come to understand that the narrowing that is caused by the vessel wall disease, the plaque within the vessel wall disease, in a sense acts like a very little tumor as it's sitting there. The vessel wall is thin and used to getting its own nutrients pretty much from either the lumen itself, or as you quite rightly say, the vasovasorum, which is vessels supplying the vessels. What we have found that is as the vessel itself becomes thickened, it can no longer rely on those two pathways for getting nutrients into the vessel wall itself. So the vasovasorum actually becomes, in a sense, like a malignant circulation and starts to grow into the plaque and you get this network of neovasculature, which is, as in tumors, very unstable and friable and actually is the cause of bleeding into the vessel wall.
0: Now, do you think that the plaque itself is secreting certain messengers or cytokines that are actually creating angiogenesis?
1: It depends how you define the plaque. Definitely, again, part of the evolution of our understanding of the disease itself is that Atheroma is really an inflammatory disease. The things that are being produced within plaque, the drivers really stir up the inflammatory system. So as part of the plaque and within the plaque itself, there's a very uh, active inflammatory milieu that attracts macrophages, etc. Now, it's probably the macrophages themselves in response to the environment and what they find there and lipids and cholesterol, etc., that they then start secreting the cytokines, the VEGF, these sort of things that then stimulate that whole environment to then become, really to step up the pace of growth at that point. You know, there's a, in my mind, a, a definite sort of quiescent phase where there's just thickening of the wall and then there's really an accelerated phase as this inflammatory neovasculature phase takes over.
0: You know, I think a lot of people are surprised when when I do some teaching and I say that, you know, lots of the lipid that's in a plaque is actually coming from the destruction of red blood cells. And it's not coming from the, you know, inside of the lumen. Can you comment on that?
1: I'd love to. It's one of my favorite sort of models in my own mind when I start to think about this. And obviously, there's been some great work by Renu Vermani and the histologists that have looked at this sort of work to suddenly realize that, the blood isn't necessarily, or the blood ve- blood cells aren't necessarily coming from the lumen itself, but A, they're coming from tiny vessels within the vessel wall, but it even more than that, the red blood cell itself is, is then adding to this whole lipid core that we're so worried about, rightly so. And in fact, when I lecture on this, I call it the red blood cell is like a Molotov cocktail. Within the red blood cell, we have hemoglobin. And within that hemoglobin is iron. And iron is tremendously inflammatory. And around that red blood cell is this cholesterol laden membrane. In fact, one of the, the highest cholesterol densities within the whole body So that when you start bleeding small red blood cells into this environment, you're putting in the fuel to the fire, which is the the cholesterol membrane, and inflammatory drivers such as iron, which are then trapped within that plaque. And in my mind, they're driving this whole process.
0: Now, in the United States, if you talk at all about heavy metals and even mention the word chelation, you are ostracized. What is it like in Canada?
1: I haven't heard it mentioned too much in Canada, so probably we wouldn't be ostracized yet, but it's a a very interesting area to look at and one that we're actively looking at because if that model is really true and we can get drugs that go into the plaque and bind those inflammatory species such as iron, the theory would be we can actually turn off that inflammatory response. And I think maybe when people think of chelation, it's not necessarily in, in the realm of vascular disease or plaque. It may be in other areas, but I think if you can have a model and a hypothesis that actually looks like it uh, could be interrupted by something like chelation, then that is something that uh, is worth looking at.
0: When you look at the lesions that you've taken out of someone who, let's say, had a, a carotid endarterectomy, are you seeing intraplaque hemorrhages that occurred that went unnoticed and or didn't have any clinical sequelae and eventually one might have potentially killed that patient or led to a stroke or heart attack.
1: Yes, definitely, and the beauty of the MRI technique is it's non-invasive it, as far as we know. It's a, it's a safe technique to use. It's one we can use repetitively and in, in a longitudinal setting. So it's, it's very well suited for this sort of examination. We now incorporate looking for interplug hemorrhage as part of our clinical routine. It's a very quick scan, takes about five minutes, and you can get a lot of very useful information. What that means is that not only a lot of these patients are being worked up because they have a symptomatic side, and we can look at their symptomatic artery, but uh, they usually have an asymptomatic side at the same time. And therefore, we have a lot of information about the asymptomatic vessels, which surprisingly or not, they commonly have intraflaric hemorrhage as well. So it's some people, when I've presented that, will then say, well, that therefore refutes that this is a useful marker because it's not a direct link between symptoms and interplaque hemorrhage. And I, I would say that it's better than that in in the sense that we can then use these markers to follow these patients over time, which is exactly what we've done. And what we found when we've done that after a two-year follow-up, whether these patients have high-grade stenosis and are symptomatic, low-grade stenosis and are sim- symptomatic, or even completely asymptomatic with a low-grade stenosis, it is the, we have found in our group anyway, it is the intraflaric hemorrhage group that then go on to have symptoms. And if you don't have intraplaque hemorrhage, we found it very rare that you'll then go on to have symptoms.
0: You said you're using it clinically. So what are you doing differently when you see someone with intraplaque hemorrhage and they're already on a statin, aspirin, fish oil, blood pressure medicine? What else can you do to squelch that fire?
1: I think that's a very good question. And uh, it may be that from a clinical perspective uh, at the moment until we can do trials to look at changing those outcomes, it will be more of an educational piece to the clinician that's uh, you know to to let them know that they have someone with what we call hot plaque rather than cold plaque where I think it even now is having some influence is where there's a borderline decision with a patient who's at the moment, as you know, we, we tend to rely on stenosis as defining whether a patient's gonna have an operation or not. And I think if there's someone on a borderline sort of stenotic cutoff between 50 and 51% or 70 and 71%, and we can say this patient actually has extensive inflaric hemorrhage, et cetera, they look like they're having symptoms related to those things that we're finding in the in the crotid, it can sometimes just tip the balance for the surgeon or or vice versa if we can say that this plaque looks completely cold and you know if you 're reticent to sort of go ahead and do surgery on this patient anyway, it may just give them a, an added confidence to say okay we 'll sit on them for six months and see how they go and see how their medical therapy kicks in
0: interesting, have you been able to look at coronary arteries?
1: The holy grail in a sense, and we obviously a lot of the work on vessel wall disease has centered around the carotids and there's very good reasons for that. They're superficial and they stand still. Take the converse of all three of those and in the coronaries you have small vessels which are relatively deep in the chest and they move around all over the place. So they have challenges. Obviously, cardiac MRI has made huge strides over the last five to ten years whereby the, the resolution that we can now get in you know, the beating heart is phenomenal, and we are certainly getting to a level whereby we can start seeing the coronary vessel wall and start to apply really the same technologies that we've been using in the, the big standing still vessels into those smaller vessels, and, and that's where we're really going at the moment.
0: Now, if we go back to the carotid, I do not have access to getting an MRI of my patient 's carotids. Is there something that I could see on ultrasound of their walls that might make me think, "Oh, that looks like a intravascular hemorrhage
1: yeah it 's again a very good question because ultrasound is cheaper than MR, probably more accessible for most people, and really what we're talking about here and what we're aiming towards is some form of, you know, people don't like the word at times, screening. You know, if we can get a test that in asymptomatic patients before they've had their event, that's probably a better time to start treating them than when they have their event. Obviously, MR is, you know, it, it may be the tool if we have lots, especially in Canada, if we have lots more scanners, that would be helpful, but ultrasound is readily available. The problem with ultrasound and interpolaric hemorrhage is that the echoes, and that's what we're dealing with with ultrasound, that are generated by an interpolaric hemorrhage aren't that different from a lipid core, etc., cetera, et cetera. So you actually don't have the specificity that you might have with the MRI scanner to be able to differentiate those patients with and without intraplaric hemorrhage. Now, what we're investigating, and it comes back to your very good point earlier on about the vasorum—if you can look at the stage before interclark hemorrhage, you might say that that would be even better. If you can see a plaque that's got a lot of neovasculature, that may give you the clue that this is the patient that's going to bleed and then potentially have their stroke from their bleed. So that may be a, another target. And certainly, we're now looking at in the same group of patients that then go on to have their MRI scan that we can then compare the different imaging modalities by using bubble contrast ultrasound. We can actually visualize the vasovasorum quite easily, and we can now see those small vessels within the plaque, and uh, we have projects ongoing at the moment to try and quantitate and get some harder data defining which plaques are vascular and which plaques are avascular and looking to see if that will give us some clue as to uh, which patients will then go on to have symptoms.
0: Well, Dr. Alan Moody, it was a pleasure talking with you today.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: My guest was Dr. Alan Moody, professor in the Department of Medical Imaging at the University of Toronto, Faculty of Medicine. And we were talking about the use of three-dimensional MRI in detecting intraplaque hemorrhage. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thanks for listening.
1: You've been listening to this
0: month's special series, Focus on Heart Health. For a program guide, complete list of shows, and podcasts, please visit us at reachmd.com.